Thanks, Chuck. Getting that down a little bit. Good morning. Um, thank you for being here and allowing me to have voice. It is important that we respect voices. Ultimately, certainly, primarily the voice of God, that God would speak. And thank you for listening. The way that we care for one another is to listen. The way you say that you love your loved ones is to truly listen to them. And for attending, you know, they always say attendance is 80% of success. To truly attend means to give your attention to something, not just to physically show up, but to actually attend. And so my question in my life has become more and more, does God have my attention? Certainly I need to attend to God, but does God have my attention? And so I thank you for allowing me to have a chance to have voice, and as we listen ultimately to God, speak to us, even this morning, through Holy Scripture and through one another, because we know where Jesus lives. And if you don't know where Jesus lives, ask one of my granddaughters, Addie or Rose, because they've been taught, where does Jesus live? And they will say, in my heart. And Chris has just taken us through a, a, a good series on the indwelling of the very presence of God. So we listen to God through one another as well. We all want uh, security, esteem, acceptance, power, and control. That is the nature, the inherent nature of humanity. That we seek, everyone seeks that. Security, esteem, acceptance, power, and control in some way. We, I say collectively, although whether you are here as a believer or a not yet believer or a confirmed non-believer, all are welcome. We all collectively seek security, esteem, acceptance, power, and control through some means. I have come to the point in my life that those can only and consistently and fulfillingly be completed by following Jesus Christ. In his death, in his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his reign as Lord of all. That's where I am finding my security, esteem, acceptance, power, and control. In uh, 1 Corinthians 13, the end of that, what we call the love chapter, Paul's been writing to this church that really struggles. This is 1 Corinthians 13, the very end of that chapter, the end of the love chapter. For now we see in a mirror, this is verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, 
but the greatest of these is love. Paul's been writing to a church that is struggling, the church in Corinth. They're fussing with one another, they have disorder, and Paul is very concerned that they get their act together because they represent God to a world around them that is looking for security and esteem and acceptance and power and control in the ways that are most healthy for them. And Paul knows that that's through Christ, and the church has to be the messenger that represents Christ to them. So they, the world would look at us and say, oh, that makes sense. That's really how you learn to live together, how, how you work things out. You know, our country just went through an election where we as a culture, we're trying to figure out how to live together, and we're struggling to figure that out. The world would love to know and to see how it works, and that's our task. So, Paul says we see in a mirror dimly. Did you see a Mount Hood this morning? No, because it's foggy. And, and I really, I'm sorry that that guy didn't show up that you were introducing, Don, the guy that was going to have all the answers. What's going to happen? Okay. We know some things and some things we don't. We still see dimly in a mirror. So I will not try to nail jello to the wall this morning, because that won't work if we're trying to let the Bible speak to us honestly. I have a few ideas, and I'll try to create some biblical, Christ-centered discussion. Um, That's the best I'm going to be able to do today. You'll have some other speakers later that can take you more maybe where you want to go. I don't know. Faith, hope, and love. In my work as a chaplain, hope is a great word. We're always trying to figure out where is the hope of this patient and their loved ones. Where do they find hope? The definition of spiritual healing in our work includes expectations, realistic expectations of an enjoyable future. What is our expectation for an enjoyable future? Well, there are some ideas about the biblical view of what happens next in the future. Um, If you were to design a a ministry of, or, or a series of lessons in explaining what does the future hold, biblically there's three basic positions, the, the traditional, the universal, and the conditional. The traditional it has been, that has come to us oh, from early uh, medieval times is that everyone lives forever, the saved or the rescued go to enjoy a heaven, a sort of a disembodied, a distant realm that's very amorphous, undefined, uh, that the, and the unsaved suffer everlasting conscious torment. Uh, those are the unsaved, the unrescued, um, uh, terms like hell and Hades and Sheol. Uh, those would be terms that the traditional viewpoint would hold. The, the universal viewpoint is that everyone lives forever and that the uh, unsaved 
are uh, ultimately refined and saved as they get additional opportunities to turn to Creator God. That's the universalist position. And the conditional position is that the saved and the rescued are raised in immortal glory to live forever, uh, and the unsaved or the unrescued are raised into mortal shame, and then final destruction, which may include temporary suffering. So those are the three basic biblical views of final punishment. And then the, the biblical views of final rescue or rest would be the, the one that we would call heaven, that we're very familiar with that term, uh, of a distant, disembodied existence with God. Um, some would say that's the uh, in the clouds concept. Uh, the other view would be uh, the idea of a new heavens, new earth, a recreation uh, with a newly embodied existence. But this morning's sermon is not taking us down that road because that's too much material in too little of a time and would do us minimal benefit. But those are important questions that need to be in an ongoing conversation for this congregation and, and any congregation. What's the message we have for the world as to what we expect for an enjoyable future? Where is our hope? Parker Palmer talks about his life in the Midwest. And he said during the winter in the Midwest, they would have blizzards that would create a whiteout. Has anybody ever been in a whiteout? It is something to behold. I've, I've been skiing at Arapaho Basin in Colorado, and we had a whiteout. And you could not tell if you were going down the slope or up. It, to have somebody tell you that, you wouldn't believe it. But when you're there, it really does happen. But we've all been in heavy fog where the fog is, you can't see past your front bumper, and that's frightening, where you have to open up the door to look for the lane line. Well, Parker Palmer talks about in the Midwest when they would have a blizzard whiteout, the farmers would do something, and many of you already know what they would do. They would tie a rope from the back door of the house Where? Back, back from the house, back out to the barn. Because if you didn't have that rope, you could get lost in that whiteout blizzard condition, wander a few feet off, 20 or 30 feet, and then spend the next 20 feet this way trying to find the rope, and the next 20 feet, and you're lost, and death would happen. So we're trying to tie a rope here to, to be able to make our way into this vast unknown as to what is there for us. It's been said that religious people work very hard to please God in order to stay out of hell. And that spiritual people are those who hunger to better know God because they've already been there. 
I would guess that within this crowd of people, there are people who have experienced trauma and destruction and discouragement in ways that you could describe as hellish, if you will. The loss of hope, the loss of a direction to follow. And this congregation always wants to be ready to receive those people and to say that there is a rope from the back door to the barn that we don't have to get lost in the blizzard of what life throws at us. I think there are two points in this rope. One point is what Chris has been preaching the last few months on the indwelling Spirit of God. And so I want us to think about the afterlife in the sense of how God has continually, from Genesis through Revelation, God has been bringing what we will call the heaven onto and into the earth. That is a constant pattern of what God's been doing. In the garden over here in Genesis, what's the situation? Has heaven and earth virtually come together, that God walks in the garden, right? And then we get into Exodus and the rescue out of Egypt. And what does God do with these Hebrews as they're wandering in the wilderness? And wilderness is a great theme. We'll maybe talk about Wilderness in our class session about people find themselves in the wilderness of despair and depression and grief. But what does God do in the wilderness? He instructs Moses on how to build the tabernacle. And what is the tabernacle but heaven coming to join with those on earth, the presence of God? And so the Old Testament is filled with episodes of what's built by King Solomon that David wanted to build. The majestic temple. The most grand view of what? Heaven comes and joins earth. And you have the the holy place, the holy of holies, the most holy place. God has come to be with God's people. And then, of course, the exile and the loss of that temple, the loss of that presence, if you will. And then, in John chapter 1, the gospel, after those 400 years of intertestamental time, we read John's gospel. He says, in the beginning was the word... The ultimate meaning and purpose of life. The ultimate essence of what life is all about. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's talking about Jesus. And then by verse 16 in John chapter 1, we have these words. And the Word, the Word, that's capital W, Word, was 
It's going to be Jesus. It is Jesus. Because he is the very essence of life. From the beginning, creation of life, into that fog that we don't quite understand. And the word became what, church? Flesh. And that, that blew everybody's mind. They could not understand how could God become flesh because flesh in that Greek culture was considered as something evil and distasteful. Something that God would trash and throw away. I'm just I'm throwing out some ideas that need to help us as we construct our real beliefs into what God may have in store for us as an enjoyable future. Earth joining with the heavenly somehow. And then Solomon's, or the second temple, Herod's temple will be destroyed. You know, Jesus says, I come to destroy this temple. That's not going to be the way God comes to you anymore. It'll be destroyed by 70 AD. But Jesus says, what is God going to do after he lifts Jesus back onto, into the throne, the throne room of the heavenlies, what is going to happen? Who is going to be sent? The Holy Spirit coming to join the earthly. That's the story of God. And I think that ought to always build the basis of how we begin to project our thinking into the future. The rock-solid foundation is the passage that Chuck read to us this morning, what that, which is of first importance. We'll go back to the beginning of that chapter. Chuck, I probably just should have had us, you know, read from the, from the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, but... Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. All right, remember, he's writing to this church that's struggling, living in this Greek culture where they don't flesh and spirit, that, that, that makes no... To, to combine those two makes no sense to them in that culture. But Paul's going to drive the point as to what God's been doing, not just recently, but what he's been doing ever since Genesis. In fact, he'll bring it all the way to Revelation 21 and 22, the writer of Revelation, to say, do the heavens, do the, does the earth rise to the heavens? No, it says, the new heaven, the new Jerusalem, comes down. That's Revelation chapter 21 and 22, the very end of the story. But I'm ahead of myself. This Corinthian culture, Paul's trying to calm these Christians, and he wants them to stand on solid ground so they don't get shaken. Verse 3 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, for I delivered to you as of First importance, 
So when in doubt, go back to square one. This is rock solid. You can depend on this. You can bet the farm on this. As of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And when Paul says with the scriptures, he means this is what God's been explaining all along since the beginning. This is not just some new theory that just got thrown out there because it attracts a good crowd. This has been the whole story of God. I have 10.06, and I think I'm good till about 10.14. That'd be about 29 minutes. If that's okay with you. Please don't raise your hand if it's not, because that would... That's rock solid. The death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. That's why he can claim lordship. That's Romans chapter 1, the first four verses. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. This is Romans, the very beginning which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be who? The son of God. Now, if you're, he's writing to Rome, church in Rome. If you're in Rome, who is called the son of God in Rome? Caesar. So this is in your face kind of language. You want to know who the real son of God is? We would say in our culture, you know, you want to know who's really in charge? Again, we go back to our politics. You know, we, we want to figure out who's really in charge. Boy, if, if my candidate wins, I'll, then we'll rip it. Really? In light of Romans? He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Again, we can take that I can take to the bank without doubt as a follower, believer in Christ Jesus. I don't understand all the details. And that preacher that Don wants to have Explain it all. We'll be here soon, I hope. So that's the two points of the rope. The Holy Spirit has come to dwell in us. God has been with God's people and continues to be with God's people in a way that is so intimate and close to our very flesh that the presence of God is with us. And the other end of the rope is that Jesus rose from the dead and has proven himself to be the one who's really in charge. Even over death and sin. I have a lot of people in the work I do say, well, chaplain, I'm just, I'm just not good enough. I've done things in my life that I... And I said, 
Now, who do you believe is judge? You want to talk about judgment. Who is the judge here? Who's in charge? And they said, well, Jesus is. And I said, well, then, are you, that means there's only room for one on the judgment seat. You've got to get off and quit judging yourself and condemning yourself and let the one who has the real authority get on the throne and if he declares that he has power over sin to bring forgiveness and to set things right, then let him. But don't play with this namby-pamby religious talk. Oh, I'm so religious, but I'm just not good. We know that. I know that. I'm not good enough. No, none of us are. But he's in charge. That's the rope is tied at that point. And also the fact that God is with me. There are powers belonging to death that orient our life around fear. These fear-based ways of being in the world are distorting and enslaving. The good news is that God's power has been demonstrated apart from fear in the cross of Jesus. This power expressed as selfless love frees us for true engagement in and with all of God's creation. Jesus stepped into the mess of the world. He stepped right into your mess. He stepped into my mess. And he took on all that the world throws at one another. Blame, condemnation, rejection, unhappiness, violence, they threw it on Jesus, and they assassinated him. A political smear campaign that put him on the cross. But Jesus ended up stepping out of that mess and said, God wins. Out of the tomb, say, God has come to be with God's people. And yes, sometimes it seems like a fog, and we can't see quite clearly, sort of dimly, as in a mirror that's a little bit blurred. So we'll talk about some of these things in our class. How do we deal with a world that grieves and Faces loss. But I'm going to hold on to that rope. I'm not going to let go of that rope. Even when the blizzard of life overwhelms me. One end is tied to the fact that God has come to be with us. The indwelling spirit of God, which is God's style of being all along. 
And the other point is that Jesus has won a victory over sin and death, and he's the judge, and he has the power. And I need to make sure that I'm honoring him. Hold on to the rope. Even as we uh, face the fog, there are signposts along the way. Don't despair. We will travel together and come to know him more and more who is the way. Thank you.